We're studying Romans chapters 12 through 16 in this series, Vital Truths Applied. We studied the first three chapters of Romans uh, a, a little bit earlier. And all of these sermons, by the way, are online. So if you want to catch up, if you happen to miss a, a, a Sunday, then you can go online and, and catch up. Now, last week we saw that not every behavior can be easily identified as either sinful or acceptable, as either bad or good. Now, a lot of behaviors are easily identified because the Bible talks about them. Uh, and so we can say, oh yeah, that's, that's a sinful behavior. Well, that's an acceptable behavior. But last week in chapter 14, the Apostle Paul tells us about a third bucket. He, uh, the ESV talks about it as opinions, and NIV uses disputable matters. Uh, there is a category of behavior that the Bible does not directly address, and which Christians, over which Christians can disagree. And uh, what's interesting is that God does not say, here are all the potential disputable matters, and let me resolve them by telling you what bucket they actually fall into. Uh, God seems to be okay with this third category. And so rather than resolve the tensions, he gives us principles for how to relate to our Christian brothers and sisters who are on the other side of a disputable matter. Uh, so, for example, um, maybe the issue of drinking alcohol. You know, the Bible says drunkenness is a sin, but, but can you have a beer or a glass of wine? And Christians disagree about this, right? But it's a disputable matter. And so on any disputable matter, you will find yourself on one of two camps. Uh, either over here you say, that is perfectly acceptable. There's nothing wrong with that. Or you're on the other side and you say, no, 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 that's not, that's not good. Christians should not partake in that. And so here are the principles. If you find yourself in the camp saying, it's perfectly fine, here's what Paul says to do. Three rules. Number one, do not quarrel with other Christians about that disputable matter. Sure, you can discuss it, you can even debate it, but do not let it rise to a quarrel to where it starts to break down unity. Disputable matters, getting your way, being right, is not worth breaking unity. Very clear scriptural principle. Do not quarrel about it. Uh, number two, do not despise your brother or sister in Christ who's on the other side. And to despise means you say, see, you know, quietly in your own mind and heart, I wish she was not even in our church. She's narrow-minded. She's... Uh, legalistic, and if she gets her way, my freedoms get, you know, impinged upon. And, and so, just go away and get out of my life. That's a despising attitude, and Paul says, do not go there. And then, finally, Paul says, you who are, uh, what he would say, you have a strong conscience, because you recognize it's not a problem, he said, restrict yourself. Be willing to uh, limit your freedom for the sake of your brother or sister in Christ. In other words, it's more important uh, to consider them and what they need spiritually than to have your own uh, 
way and your own pleasure, and even, even to enjoy all the freedom that is rightfully yours. Uh, and especially if you partaking in the disputable matters, in, in, partaking in that behavior, will cause a brother or sister in Christ to follow your example and thereby sin against their conscience. All right? Those are the principles. Now, if you're on this side, and sometimes you're on one side and sometimes you're on the other, right? If you're on this side, there are three rules. So you think that the behavior is wrong. Christians should not do that. Christian, uh, Pastor James said, you know, maybe Game of Thrones, right? Christians shouldn't watch Game of Thrones. Uh, if you're in that camp, here are the three rules. Number one, don't quarrel, same. Number two, rather than don't despise, Paul says, don't judge. So don't look at your brother or sister in Christ who does that and say, they're a sinner. They are doing wrong. They're less of a Christian. They're less, they're, you know, they're not as holy. They don't care as much about pleasing God as I do. That judgmental attitude. Do not go there. And, and then finally, this is interesting. The Apostle Paul says, do not partake of that behavior. If you think it's wrong, don't do it. Even if objectively it's right. Because he actually identifies two issues uh, that were uh, disputable matters in the church of his day, eating meat sacrificed to idols and keeping, uh, considering some days holier than others. And he actually says, uh, the group that's uh, kind of tightly wound up, the group that thinks it's wrong, objectively, they're incorrect. There is nothing wrong with eating meat sacrificed to idols. And uh, one day is not holier than another. But rather than say, okay, you guys over here, adjust yourselves, he says, actually don't partake. That's a key rule. Because if you do something that your conscience is saying is wrong, even if it's not wrong, for you it is wrong. In fact, he says it's sin. Boy, that's interesting. So not offending the conscience is important um, because there is this ability to sear the conscience uh, in which... You, by that, what that means is that you just start blowing past your conscience and doing, go, doing stuff you, that you think is wrong, and that's not a good uh, practice to get into because you can start to see your conscience. So that's chapter 15. I'm going to put, I'm sorry, that's chapter 14. And today, kneeling, today is chapter 15. And chapter 15 begins with the relationship principle that governs how Christians relate to other Christians that has been uh, informing uh, all of the discussion of chapter 14. And it's kind of like uh, the golden rule. It's kind of like the do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And, and here it is. It's chapter 2, uh, chapter 15, verse 2, he says, here's the rule. Let each of us please his neighbor, not please himself, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. <clears throat> There's the rule. Don't just be about you, but be about your brother and sister. Don't just think about what do I want and what do I need, but what does my brother or sister in Christ need? So we're going to back up to verse 1. Uh, here, we, here we go. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Um, ESV says failings of the weak. NIV says the weaknesses of the weak, which is actually a little, which is more accurate. 
Uh, I think the ESV is trying to avoid a redundancy. Uh, but the weaknesses of the weak, first off, they're plural, right? But it's not necessarily a failing, it's just um, we need to accommodate our brothers and sisters in Christ who don't see things the way we see or who aren't necessarily where we are spiritually. Boy, that's a fundamentally important thing to understand. Uh, even in a group this size, there are people, we are, we are at uh, vastly different places in our spiritual growth and our spiritual walk, right? Some people have been following Christ for decades, uh, and others are new in the faith. And, and so we're at different places of spiritual maturity, different places of uh, spiritual understanding. By the way, what does it take to grow spiritually? Three things. The Bible identifies. Uh, number one, it takes truth. You need, you know, you need to have uh, biblical truth running around in your head and your heart. Uh, secondly, it takes time. It's one of the reasons the Bible says don't let a new convert become into a position of church leadership. Uh, they could be as, as sold out as possible. But it takes time for people to grow spiritually. So don't do that to them. It's actually not good for them. It's not good for the church. And then thirdly, can you guess what the third one is? This is interesting. It's trials. It's the other thing the Bible identifies. Truth, time, and trials. In other words, you've, in order to mature, you've got to go through hard things in life, apply truth to that. In other words, you start to walk uh, in faith, through the trial, you grow spiritually. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds for the testing of your faith produces, right? right? It's this. Okay, so in a, in a church, we have people in, at, at varying places in their spiritual walk. And when you get this, this really helps you be uh, much more patient and compassionate with Christians who, who don't see eye to eye with you and are, who maybe aren't... Uh, living the way you think they should be living. Uh, we're in process. And guess what? That process won't be finished until Christ returns or until we die and go to be with him. Uh, and all of us will look back, I'm sure, and say, "Woo, <laughs> I got it wrong in a whole bunch of places. Um, but praise God, he who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it. Right? So someday we will have all the sin and all the mistakes and all the uh, false beliefs and values pulled out of us, and that's going to be awesome. Okay, so understanding we're at different places, we need to be, um, we need to bear with each other, bear with the failings of the weak. Now, bear with is more than tolerate. God is not saying, "Listen, I know they're annoying, I know they irritate you, but just tolerate, bear with them, right? Just grit your teeth, try to keep your mouth shut." No, actually, the word "bear with" here. It, it means to get up under the load and help shoulder it. So your brother or sister in Christ is, is uh, spiritually weaker than you are, and they're being burdened by some load, and, and you don't just stand off at a distance and tolerate them. You actually get down underneath, and you help bear that load with them, and you make it lighter for them, which hopefully will accelerate their spiritual growth. And bearing with the failings of the weak often means you give space for people, for God to work on them in His time, right? And often God's time of maturing is slower than what we would want, especially if we're married to that person or there are our children, right? 
or somebody who has a, a direct impact on our lives. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. There's, and there's the real challenge. <laughs> I want to please me, right? I have a lot of desires, a lot of needs, and uh, I want to make sure that those are met and those are satisfied. And the reality is your weaknesses... If I start to try to accommodate your weaknesses and bear with your weaknesses, I'm not going to necessarily get what I want, right? And God knows that, and God says, guess what? <laughs> that's okay, and that's what I've called you to, because Jesus modeled that and calls us to that. And so Paul immediately goes to Christ. Verse 3, for Christ did not please himself... But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. The sister passage to this, by the way, is uh, Philippians chapter 2. In Philippians chapter 2, he kind of expands on this principle even more completely. We'll start in verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or clung to, you know, uh, closed-fisted. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Uh, Jesus said in, in Mark, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus is the example of how to live. And what did Jesus do? God, second person of the Trinity who had all the rights of being God. He had the right to be served. He had the right to be worshipped. He had the right for things to all be good for him. And yet he left heaven and he came to earth. He humbled himself. He served us ultimately by laying down his life for us. That's the example Jesus set, and that is what he calls us to. There's no, uh, you know, he who wants to follow me, pick up your cross daily. So he has called us to a life of serving others. Let's put this into a simple to remember form. Here it is. Well, let me just actually, yeah, here, here it is. It's you before me living. You before me living. What is my natural impulse? Because I have a sin nature. What is your natural impulse? Because you have a sin nature. I know this about you because it's true of all people. Here it is. Me before you. That is, that's my default setting. That's your default setting. Me before you. That's the way I want to live apart from Christ transforming me. Uh, and, but, but I have a sin nature. I have a sin nature, and that sin nature won't be removed, uh, uh, killed off in my life until uh, Christ returns. So, so my natural impulse, my default setting is me before you. 
I'm going to make sure that I get what I want. I'm going to make sure that I get my needs met. I'm going to make sure that I'm safe and I'm comfortable and I'm happy. I'm fulfilled. I'm self-actualized. All the words that we, right, uh, hear. Uh, that has to happen. And then if I've got some stuff left over or if helping you and, and pleasing you doesn't con contradict that, fine. That is, that is the default setting. Understand that. And that is, uh, and Jesus has modeled and calls us to a radically different way of living. Jesus says, actually, look at what I did was you before me. And that's the way I want you to, to live, you before me. And, and that is on display. The calling is most acute and on, most, on display in the Christian community, in the church. You before me. That is easy to say and unbelievably hard to do. And it's day by day, moment by moment choices. And I've told you this uh, before a few times, but it was, I was in my mid-30s uh, when for, it, was, it was as if a light went off in my brain that the mark of spiritual maturity is not biblical knowledge. It's not even faith. It's love. Now, I could, have, I could have identified that on a test. I knew that, but I didn't know it. I didn't feel it. Uh, 1 Corinthians 13, 13. But now abides three things, faith, hope, and love. These three. But the greatest of these is biblical knowledge. Even faith. No, the greatest of these is love. And Paul actually elaborates and says, even if I give my body to be burned and I have not love, I'm nothing. Right? The Christian life without love the Christian life without practicing you before me is meaningless. It's empty. It's not the Christian life we, Jesus uh, modeled and calls us to. Ah, so difficult. So here I was in my mid-30s and I thought, um, I have a whole lot of faith. I know the word of God. You know, I've got the seminary degrees and, and I believe the word of God and I, and I have a lot of hope based in the word of God. But, but, when I examine my heart, I realize I have got so far to go in this whole issue of love. And, and it made me feel, I remember this sense of, oh, I feel like I'm a novice in, in, this, in the spiritual life. And I also thought, here I am the pastor and I look out into the church and I know that there are quite a few men and women who are more mature spiritually than I am. Uh, I could probably write the commentaries better than they could but they are farther along in their spiritual life. And that was great for me. It was humbling for me. And I think over the last 15 years, that has been my primary spiritual goal is to grow in love. And I think I've grown a little bit. <laughs> and I have a whole, whole, whole lot left to go because you before me living is just cuts against the grain. It's not my natural impulse. Um, but it is what we've, called, we've been called to do. So think. I want you to think about If you're married, if you really practiced you before me living with your wife or your husband, how would that transform your relationship? If you're a kid uh, and you have a sibling and you did that with your sibling, your coworkers, your neighbors, think about that. Oh, 
I have to admit that I enjoy Seinfeld. I, know, I don't endorse Seinfeld, but it's hilarious to me. I, I watch too much Seinfeld. There's Seinfeld, there's George, there's Elaine, there's Kramer. And uh, they are supposedly best of friends, right? They hang out all the time. But here's the reality. They epitomize, and I think the writers did it purposely. They epitomize me before you living. Absolutely. Uh, and so therefore, they're not true friends. And there's this, there's this scene that I think really just brings it to a, a head. George has, uh, is sick and he's in a hospital bed and Elaine and Kramer and Seinfeld are around the, his bed and it's, it's as if it dawns on the other three, for, uh, other three, George can't pal around with us anymore. He won't be able to help us have the life we want. And so they, they just sort of look at each other and say, let's go get some lunch. Okay. And they walk off. No goodbye and nothing. And George is watching them, you know, kind of with the startled look on his face. But there it is, right? Uh, you cannot really have deep, genuine love and relationships without uh, you before me living. Now, that should be a sermon all by itself, and I should just stop there and apply it. But I'm trying to do chapter 15. So we're going to call that the big idea through chapter, uh, through verse 13. Then in, in verse 14, Paul sa says to the Romans, basically, guys, I'm, I'm writing this letter to you, and, but, but it's not because I don't think you know anything. Uh, it's because I want to remind you of these glorious truths of the gospel. I myself am satisfied about you, verse 14, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder. I have heard people who get bored with church. Oh, I already know everything. I go to church. I don't even learn anything new. Uh, it's just the same old, the same old. Guess what? Uh, that is one of the primary purposes uh, of the preacher, to remind you of what you already know so that you'll go out and do it, right? Remember that book, Everything I Learned, I Learned in Kindergarten, and then I spend the rest of my life trying to actually do it. Same thing with the Christian life. Now, it's great. It's great when you come to church, you learn something new, and maybe uh, Pastor James or I connect the dots, and you're like, whoa, eye-opening. That's wonderful. But, but listen, you're not doing what you know, nor am I, <laughs> not fully. And we go through life and the glorious truths of the gospel and their implications can sort of recede uh, from the forefront of our minds and hearts. And so we have to be continually reminded. The apostle Peter says, uh, I want to stir you up by way of reminder. And, and so uh, it's okay if you come to church and you already knew that. But hopefully you walk away and your heart is renewed with a conviction to live in light of that glorious truth and to go out and, and be obedient more. So we've already had a glorious truth that I know none of us is perfectly implementing, and it's the you-before-me kind of living, right? And that's a life-altering uh, way of, of living, and we all need to implement that more in our relationships. So what, what spiritual truth do you need to be reminded of today? Be thinking that as we continue on. Uh, 
Then we get to verse 20, and in 20, Apostle Paul tells us that his calling, he is the apostle to the Gentiles, yes, but his, uh, his goal is to do evangelism amongst peoples who have never heard the gospel. Uh, so that's his personal kingdom ambition. I want to go to places where people have never heard the name of Christ. There's been no evangelist before. And I want to I go to these unreached peoples and then um, you know, leave behind a church. And we know that from other, uh, his other writings. So in verse 20 we read, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Um, here we are 2,000 years later. There are, there are still people groups who have never heard the gospel. And God might be calling you to be like Paul and go. And, and if you feel that ambition stirring in your heart, that, that sense of calling, I, am, I just don't feel satisfied, and this keeps looming, you know, that could be God giving you that ambition to go. And that is a noble thing. And it's absolutely a way to, go, to live you before me because oftentimes it involves uh, denying yourself in a very practical and... Uh, physical way to go. But, but for all of us, let me, here, here's what jumps off the page at me. Do I have a kingdom ambition? Do I want my life to make a splash for eternity? To resound in eternity, as the Gladiator movie says. I think it's a great line. Do, do you have a kingdom ambition? Do not be content. No matter who you are, do not be content with just sort of coasting through life. At the end of your life, you want to be able to have something to show when you stand before Christ. You, and, and he says, I gave you these talents, and you multiplied them. You used them well. Well done, good and faithful servant. I don't know the talents God has given you. Some people get more talents than others, the Bible says. But whatever God has given you, use it and maximize it. And if you're faithful with what God has given you, then he will reward you and give you even more throughout eternity. So... What's your ambition? And if you seek your, search your heart and you say, I don't have a kingdom ambition. I'm not, I, I, I'm not trying to accomplish anything for the kingdom. Nothing is driving me. Boy, you, if you pulled up the, the, the hood of the Apostle Paul's engine, there's a massive driving engine that just pushes his life forward, right? And it does not have to be it does not have to be in missionary service or a kind of paid church work. You could absolutely be about the work of the kingdom in the marketplace, in, in, the, in the schools, in government, at home. But you need to have a kingdom ambition. I, I want to accomplish something for, for God. Then in verses 22 to the end of the chapter, the Apostle Paul talks about his plans. And he says, uh, when he writes this letter, he's in Corinth. And he says, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I, I want to come see you Romans. I have been wanting to see you for a long time, and I'm going to get to you. But first, I'm going to Jerusalem. And that was about a 2,000 plus 
mile journey. He's gonna, he says, I'm going to Jerusalem, then I'm going to, then I'm actually headed to Spain, because Spain's my next big missionary uh, frontier. But I'm going to stop in Rome and visit you, hang out with you uh, on my way to Spain. So here's how he puts it. I hope to see you, I'm in verse 24, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I've enjoyed your company for a while. What's he saying? Saying, by the way, I hope, uh, I hope when I get to Rome, you guys will take up a, an offering and fund my mission to Spain. So he's preparing them. Once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. Uh, by the way, this, is, uh, this actually was a, it was a big deal in early church history. Uh, so the Apostle Paul was a Jew. God called him to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And one of the things he was very concerned about was unity between Gentile believers in Christ and Jewish believers in Christ. He didn't want this fractured church. And so one of the very practical strategies was the Gentile believers uh, raised money and sent it back to Jerusalem to help um, the poor in, Christians in Jerusalem because there was, there was quite a bit of poverty in Israel at that time. And so Paul... Uh, took up this big collection as he was doing his missionary journeys throughout uh, kind of the, the, the Gentile world. He brings it to Jerusalem, and that was a big deal in early church history, and it helped uh, sweeten relationships. <laughs> uh, so Paul was determined to get to Jerusalem and do that, and then he wanted to go hang out with the Romans. Now, the, uh, the, what happened was uh, Paul got arrested while he was in um, Israel, and he ended up getting to Rome, but as a prisoner uh, of the Romans. Uh, and then church history is um, d- divided. There's, there's question as to whether or not he got to Spain. Some of the earliest uh, church writers claim he did eventually get released from, from captivity. He made it to Spain, got arrested again by the Romans, taken back to Rome, and that's when he was killed. Now... There are, world evangelism is part of the Christian mission, and it is, I, I believe every local church uh, has, to, has to be involved in world missions. Uh, and it can be tempting to say, Clearwater Church, we, we're in Anchorage, Alaska, that's our mission field, right? We're here, let the churches that are in Indonesia evangelize Indonesia, God's placed us in Anchorage. And certainly, this is our primary mission field. But I believe we as a, as a church have a responsibility to be involved in world missions because that's the example I see in the Scriptures. So, as you know, 10% of every dollar that comes in here goes out. We give it to other Christian ministries. Uh, and the elders have specified at least half of that has to go outside of Alaska. And uh, much of it goes overseas to world missions. Now, there are three ways I believe you should be involved in world missions. And I need to be involved in world missions. And there are three primary ways to be involved in world missions. You can preach, pay, or pray. And those are all in the text. Number one, you you know, Paul was the guy who was going to preach the gospel, proclaim the glories of gospel, call people to repentance to become Christians. God might call you to do that. 
maybe to do that as a career. You know, Pastor James and Ella, they did that for 10 years in Africa. Uh, or it might be a short-term mission that you are called to do. Uh, so you can be the preacher. Secondly, you can pay, right? Just like he says, hey, I, I hope that uh, I will be helped on my journey there by you. Um, not everybody can go on the mission field because it costs money and some people have to stay and work so they have money to, to, to fund it. And often the gift of giving comes with the gift of getting. Ha, huh. that's kind of fun. So um, preach, you can pay, or you can pray. Verse 30, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. So strive together with me. The Apostle Paul viewed people who are praying for him and praying for his ministry as being partners with him in the ministry. And, and I know that there are, there are um, every missionary I, I've ever interacted with asks for prayers. And cynically, we can say, oh, that's just a nice way of saying, please fund me. But that's not really true. They, they're on the front lines of spiritual warfare, and they know they need the prayers of God's people to buoy them up, to keep them encouraged, to open doors so that they can have success. Um, I have a picture here of the Wright family. Uh, uh, that, that's Caleb Wright and his family. And they are, I believe they have raised 94% of what is necessary to go to Vietnam. They've been in the, in the, in the fundraising business uh, for a couple of years. COVID uh, just sort of put things on hold. But they're Alaskans. They want to go to Vietnam. These are uh, personal friends of uh, Victoria uh, Ross. And, and uh, I just thought, you know what? Pastor James brought that to me this week, and I thought, well, maybe this is, uh, maybe, maybe the timing is of the Lord. If you are interested in helping uh, the right family get to 100%, because they're, they're, you know, they're part of Send, Send International Missions, and, and Send will give them a, hey, you can't go in the fund rate, you can't go to the field until you've raised this amount of money, and, and they have all their formulas. So um, they're so close, and when they get to 100%, their family can go to Vietnam. And maybe the Lord will put the funding of that or the praying for this family uh, on your heart. And if so, come talk to me. I have their information. So how has God, what, what glorious spiritual truth has God reminded you of this morning that you need to just grab a hold of, uh, take it deep in, and make a big change in your life? Maybe it's the a per, maybe there's a particular relationship in which you know I've been living me before you and I need to start living you before me. Maybe that's it. Stop right there. Just say, God, I am committing to making a change in, in that relationship and the way I relate to this person. Uh, and then just set a goal of this week, right? God, this week, help me. And I'm going to be very focused on it. Um, it, it might be that, you're, that the, the big uh, reminder for you is spiritual ambition. I don't have any spiritual ambition. I'm just coasting. I, I, I'm not trying to accomplish anything for the kingdom. And then that's, that's not worthy uh, of the calling on your life. And so you say, God, help me, I, you know, help me get an ambition. Place it within me. Open my eyes. Burn in my heart. I don't want to just coast. Maybe that's your big takeaway.
or, or maybe it's world missions. I need to be involved in world missions. Could be that he's calling you to go. Or to fund, to make more financial sacrifices so that other people can hear about Jesus. Or to pray. Now, praying is not just a, a throwaway. Praying is a work. It's a sacrifice. I mean, I, it's about as pure of a living you before me activity as possible. No, but you don't get any credit except moving heaven, especially if you're doing it quietly. You know, they don't even know you're praying for them. You're praying and not doing something else to advance your agenda and pleasures. Prayer, prayer is a very selfless, loving act. Okay, grab a hold of how the Lord's reminding you and make decisions to uh, step into that. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the Apostle Paul and, and that you uh, had so gripped his heart. Uh, we, we are blessed today, thousands of years later, by his writings, by his example. Lord, we're so thankful for his faithfulness to us, thankful for your word. And um, Lord, we have been stirred up by way of reminder today. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.